Welcome to Built for Life, the podcast dedicated to socially conscious property professionals who believe the future can be better than the present and your property decisions make it so. So to all of the innovators, this podcast will give you behind the scenes access to industry leading experts and researchers on how they think, create, analyze and deliver the best buildings in the world extracting their key advice, information, and considerations that you can apply to your personal and professional life. This is Adam Hines with my co-host, Jordan Ralph. Welcome to the Built for Life podcast. Well, hello there, property professionals and wellbeing enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Built for Life podcast. And today's guest is Jason Hawkins Rowe. Jason is the founder and CEO of Aponic, which has invented and also sells domestic and commercial vertical modular growing systems to grow fruit and vegetables in urban environments 365 days a year in the most affordable, accessible and inclusive way possible making urban farming, um, or farming, in fact, in an urban setting available to every single person. Now, the aponic system uses 90% less water than traditional growing methods, saving energy, climate damage, and most importantly, for property professionals, integrates food production, uh, green space, air cleaning ability, and community activities Uh, into buildings and it takes up almost no space as the kits can be installed almost anywhere from basements to garden fences to walls in hallways, lobbies, atriums, terraces, rooftops, sheds, everywhere you can think of. So really exciting episode. Just some background to Aponic. They have won a whole host of awards for their urban farming solution. They've won the EADT Small Business of the Year Award, Top UK 100 Small Businesses Award, Best Environmental Business of the Year, Greenest County Award winner, and the list goes on and on and on. So this talk today is really informative uh, for property professionals right now for a multitude of reasons. As with the COVID-19 pandemic, Obviously, food security, food supply is of huge importance. So this solution can build food resilience into the buildings that you're designing, into your own homes, into the local communities, um, and even into city center locations, which is of huge importance. And as well as the benefits to uh, impacts of sustainability and climate change, uh, just because it's a lot more efficient to grow. And also... My favorite is for property professionals is building, this gives, provides an opportunity to increase community interactions by building trust and connections, which is the most important aspect of better quality of life. Now, without further ado, please enjoy this amazing show. A huge welcome to the show, Jason. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Hi, Adam. Good to see you. So it's been a while since we actually uh, came and checked out your incredible urban farming factory in Suffolk. I remember when we, when Jordan and I came up, you had grown, I'm pretty sure it was the hottest chilies in the world. And um, I remember Jordan and I were trying to trick each other into eating it. Well, I think we took one home and put it in our pockets. And we, every time we'd go out for food, we'd put it in each other's food, which is pretty gross. But uh, 
That's just a, a fond memory of uh, our trip to your, your factory. I seem to remember you actually eating it, Adam, but that was... Um, no, that's yeah. not, not, not a chance I would have done. <laughs> that, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty heroic. They were very mean. Um, and, yeah, it was nearly two, two and a half years ago, isn't it? I think we, yeah. Yeah. we saw each other and it was... Uh, yeah, a lot's been happening since then. Excellent, yeah. So, absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, and it's also very timely considering the current state of play that we've got with COVID-19 causing havoc on food production and food supply and food shortages. So this show is basically for anyone who eats food or likes food. This is for you. So let's just dive straight in, Jason. And I, I, with all of our guests, before we really get stuck into the technical details of what you do, I'd like to rewind the clock and learn about you as you haven't always been in agriculture and vertical farming. So I just wanted to understand what was the key personal driver for you as to why you wanted to sort of make that career shift and, and push uh, a lot of life energy into urban farming? Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not the usual, usual track. Um, I started out as an aircraft design engineer and we moved into various different stages of that, but I eventually decided to get out because it wasn't sort of sitting well with me, what I, what I ended up doing. Um, and we ended up working around missile release and all sorts of other things, and that's not really um, good for karma. So <laughs> I, I got out of that and I started training horses. Um, I couldn't, it's the only other thing I knew how to do, so I did that for a while. While I was doing that, I... Uh, was looking at the software that we had to trace bloodlines on horses. And that led me to teach myself to program and create um, a whole new way of doing it because I, the way that they were doing it is quite clunky. Um, and it pretty quickly became apparent that programming was more lucrative than horses. So I became a programmer, <laughs> um, started with small agencies in London, ended up working all around the world on encryption and high-end security models and again that sort of dragged me into areas that I wasn't very happy with so it came to the point where I decided to get a, a pipe and slippers and a Labrador and go home and get myself an allotment and uh, grow some food and all the way through this process I was filling in my time because I don't really sleep a lot um, so I'd always have a side project and it was normally around rainwater recycling or reed beds or building fish ponds in airports and all sorts of things, but generally around water and the, the, the ecosystems that live around it, which absolutely fascinated me all, all the way through. Um, so I got my allotment up to speed and I was really happy with it and somebody came along and stole everything. Oh, uh, one no. Night. So I was... A bit bereft, but, you know, if they'd asked me for it, I'd have given it to them. But, you know, there's no need to steal it. Um, so I decided I wanted a bit of food security and I sat around and, and thought about it for a while. And I started making various hydroponic units um, and literally tried every hydroponic unit in the box. Um, and it turned out the one I really liked out of the hydroponics was a flood and drain system, which... Um, floods the roots and then drains them off and it, as it drains off it drags a lot of oxygen to the root and you notice a, a big um, hit in performance or a big improvement in performance when you get a lot more oxygen to the root 
which led me on to look at aeroponics. And I then created a, an aeroponic unit which um, sits on my fence at home and basically provides a lot of food from a very small footprint. Um, and with the, the, the difference that the oxygen makes to the roots in aeroponics is that the plants are able to form their oils and sugars much more efficiently. So what I was getting is much faster growth, much bigger yields, but actually when you've got the full complement of oils and sugars in the plants, then you get amazing flavour. Uh, that drove me on even further to look at actually a lot of the, the crops that are grown in the UK and in Europe are deficient in zinc and magnesium and various other things because we, we just don't have it in the soil anymore. Um, so we could actually create fruit and veg and all sorts of other pharmaceutical and raw materials um, with a lot more usable content in it, but you know, real flavour in the food, high quantities of usable um, elements in the pharmaceutical crops. Um, and it's just rolled on from there, really. I, 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 as I was experimenting with it, somebody came along and said, you probably ought to patent that. So we did. And I took it to a show. And it was the first show we did and somebody came along and said, would you like to come to a show with us? And they were the DTI at the time or the, um, um, yeah, so they, they said, look, would you come along and say, yeah, okay. It turned out it was the World Expo. Um, <laughs> so there was, I stood with a prototype basically in the standing to talking to a thousand farmers in Milan. Um, and I went there with a, the prototype and came back with export orders so we had a business and jason uh, i'm sorry to, to jump in I'm, yeah. just, I'm very intrigued by some of the, what you've said it, it's, it sounds really fascinating and um obviously no one realizes when they see a product what what journey that it's gone to to get to, to where it has something that's really trying to accord with with me just from perhaps some of our own experiences adam and i when we started life proven was the something not sitting right with you in the in your professional life and and um, maybe personal life when you said about someone stealing your crop is that those events led you to where you've got to how in terms of you know i i i know you're a value your values driven individual and you know that you you place a lot of importance on that is that something that's really driven your work do you think in terms of wanting to do something that food growth that's sustainable yeah, very much so. And the whole thing, right from the outset, I looked at it and all the materials we use are either recyclable or sustainable. Um, and it really does. Everything that we look at. And I walk around in the high street and see things that are just not sustainable. And apart from the fact they're damaging, I don't, you know, anything that's not sustainable can't be something you can build a future on. Um, so. I, my sustainability bent is, is sort of um, at the forefront of everything I do and I really enjoy working with people who are into um, biodynamic growing and that sort of thing because they've got so many really good um, ideas and the way that they grow is amazing. Um, same with the organic farmers you know and although um, organic isn't necessarily the most sustainable way to grow. It certainly opens some amazing doors in people's perception of food. 
that it can yeah. actually be um, sustainable and it can be a lot less damaging to the to the climate and to the planet to grow. Um, sure. And so you know, there's all those things of, of molded into my thought patterns the whole way through. And I, and if you're going to be sustainable, you look at Mother Nature and you take a piece of it and you turn it into something that everybody can access very, very easily. Um, and, you know, I could go out there with a placard in the street and shout at people, but the reality is that if I create a system that's profitable, um, uses 90% less water than we're currently using, gives above organic standard fruit and veg, and people can do that at home or they can do it commercially, then it's whatever happens as a byproduct, it's more sustainable. Um, yeah. And I, I, I don't necessarily go and beat people up about, you know, their, their current practices because that's the way farming and everything else has been done for a thousand, or for a thousand years. Um, but now I think people, are, the farmers particularly are very aware that they want to be creating sustainable crops because actually things have been pushed so far the other way that they're, they're rightfully worried about how they're going, what condition the land will be in when they hand it on to their children. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a real driver. And, you know, 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have got on a, on a, on a farmyard. But nowadays, people invite me on and phone me up and say, look, we, we want to do this because um, it's really it's a really difficult market that farmers are in right now. And what we, we sort of boiled it down to the we were looking originally, we, we knew that we probably wouldn't sell it just on green green credentials. So we looked at how to make farming profitable. Um, and the way you do that, you know, farming is, is difficult and risky because of the variables. And they, that's climate, it's um, soil condition, it's water availability, it's, it's so many things. Um, and the way to make money at farming is to remove as many variables as possible. Um, and so with our whole system, we've, we've tried to create captive and undercover um, ways to farm which are completely controllable so you don't have the variables you don't have seasonality you know and we've made it so it's very easy to harvest so that when you've got people that you're trying to employ to come along and do seasonal work well that um that creates another problem and so you know the my answer to that was to remove the seasons create you know covered crop growing um where you control the the, the the environment and everything else so you can be growing 365 days a year you don't have casual labor you have jobs and very often the farmers are spending a lot of time hiring and firing and putting people up in temporary buildings when a lot of local people in rural areas are looking for jobs um, and because we've sort of raised the bar a bit on technology levels with iot and various other things these are actually quite technical jobs now these are not you know, walking around, um, you know, there's literally not a Wellington in sight. It's on hard standing. You're working standing up. Um, it's comfortable to work in. It's, it's controlled environment. So you're, you're you know, you, you know whether to put a jumper or a t-shirt on. 
Um, yeah, which I'm just I'm just mindful actually, Jason. It's, it, now's probably a good a good time to actually talk about how the, how um, vertical farming works. Obviously, we Adam and I know we 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 can visualise exactly what that looks like, and yeah, got some amazing pictures as to when we came to visit you how that that structure looks. But but so maybe if you could just tell us a bit more and and to those listening um, about vertical farming, how it works from a technical perspective. Um, I think most people can get the concept about plants growing out of the wall, but but how does it actually work? Maybe touching on some things around aeroponic okay. versus aponic, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So effectively we went for an aeroponic method, which is, you know, with all with all hydroponics, aeroponics, etc., you've got essentially a a medium, a rooting medium of some sort, and a, a nutrient mix. Mm-hmm. So you're replacing the soil with that. Um we chose to not have any rooting medium and that exposes the roots to to more oxygen um so we've got a vertical tube which is approximately um five inches by four inches with a inert foam which holds the plants in place going down the front strip so if you imagine something that looks like a, a skyscraper but only a meter and a half tall. Um, it looks a lot like that. So, they, where you've got literally that footprint of, of four and a half by five and a half inches, that you can then grow vertically. You're, you're now growing 30, 40 plants in the footprint of a single plant. So, with the vertical body, it means that if we spray nutrient in the top in a very fine mist, that it drifts the whole way down the inside of the tube where the roots are and will provide water and nutrient to all of the plants. Um, now that nutrient that isn't used gets collected at the bottom and returned into the nutrient reservoir, so the whole system is is recycling. So you're recycling the water that you use it, but you're also recycling the nutrient until it's fully used up. Um, so the, the nutrient load and usage is very much reduced as well. Um, so these are literally a metre and a half tall, um, four and a half by five and a half inches square, and they go in arrays. Um, so we can put them in banks of 10 <laughs> typically, and then we, we, that forms a module that, you know, whatever you can grow in that 10, you can reproduce. If you put a hundred thousand of those modules in, it will all be exactly the same. So you get consistency and predictability um with every with every grow so the the whole reasoning behind that is to have a a much more efficient use of space so you can start using spaces that are not really considered for for growing in um, which can be unused space on farms and most farms have got a barn that they've stored rusty machinery in for 30 years and we can turn that into a really high profit zone of the farm um, there's an awful lot of industrial buildings which are unrentable because they don't come up to um, full commercial standards um, and those can be turned into farms. We've got big warehousing units and I know there's a lot of them around the country that can be turned into farms. There's a lot of greenhousing now which has um, effectively been landlocked so it can't be expanded so that the greenhouse people are now moving on to and those a lot of those are kind of um outer city yeah 
Jason, but... does it have to be industrial or commercial units? I, I, I understand that's probably where the dominant market is at the moment, but can these systems be installed in more urban areas, so like city centres within, um, say, communal spaces within buildings? Um, yeah, exactly. Or always walkways, even down the sides of people's houses, these sorts of things, if they can literally just be fixed to a wall? Yeah, exactly. We spotted that market really early on, and, and it's been... Uh, since the advent of COVID-19, it's been an amazing market because people are starting to rely uh, or starting to see the cracks in, in the, the mass marketing and mass movement of food um, and the risks involved in that. So, yeah, we can, we've, we've got a domestic unit which can be put on walls at home and it can be, um, you know, added to, to roof gardens or um, balconies. Because it's very light, there's, there's almost no weight to the thing. Obviously, there's no soil. What, what, and do, they, very what do they weigh? Uh, the the main unit with water in complete and up and running is 20 kilos. Okay. And that, um, that's all of the, the 10 units in one bank, or is that one literally one box of the 10? That's the 20 units. Wow. Okay. So really, really light. And what yeah. sort of things can people expect to actually grow? Let's... We'll start with the domestic. I'm, I'm not sure if the kits are, are dif different from a domestic and commercial perspective, but what sort of things can people expect to grow in both those instances? Yeah, so the only difference between domestic and, and commercial <coughs> um, is that it's the length of them. Okay. So the domestic ones are a metre, the commercial ones are a metre and a half, and they can be stacked on top of each other to make up any sort of height. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they, sorry, what was the second part of that question? It was, uh, what, what are the things that people can expect to grow? Yeah. So what type of food can, can people grow and sort of how, and also how quickly we can come to that second. Yeah. So the range of things that we've grown in it, we've, we've run, um, a lot of herbs. Um, as you said earlier, we've run sort of bigger plants like chilies and, uh, bell peppers. We've got cucumbers, we've got tomatoes, um, we grow wasabi, we've um, got some pharmaceutical plants, which can be anything from hemp through to um, tobacco and cotton. Um, so we, we've got a good variety, you know, again, a lot of hydroponic units nowadays are on shelving units to, to multiply up the, the usable space. Um, but that limits the height of the plant you can grow. We can grow very, very tall plants um, in over, over over the top of each other, and we can grow a lot of them in a very small space. Um, so pretty much anything... Well, I used to say anything apart from potatoes, but I did push some seed potatoes in the front of a tube once, and they grew, and I knew that they'd um, come to a crop because they started pushing potatoes back out the front of the tube. <laughs> um, and that was, I think, I think it was 42 days from when I put the, the seed potato in to it having a full crop on it. And they, those potatoes come out clean and washed and ready to go in a bag, which commercially is huge. Yeah, no dirt, so you don't have to dig down and extract them. Yeah, that yeah. is... Um, and what about fruit? Do you also... Can you grow like things like... Oh, I don't even know. Is a strawberry a fruit? Would you class strawberry as a fruit? 
Uh, I don't think officially it's a fruit because the seeds are on the outside. But yeah, we can grow fruit. We can grow um, um, strawberries really well. And there's a lot of really interesting research we've done around strawberries and changing root temperature, which you can't do in soil. So um, the whole point of what we're doing is, you, is that control. So you can affect the way that the roots um, are perceiving the world. Um, without having to dig them up or, or, you know, put heating mats under enormous fields of strawberries. Um, and we've adapted a unit that goes on top of existing strawberry trays, that they, you know, the long trays, the raised trays they use for commercial strawberry growing. So that in, at every growing station, you've got four plants in the footprint of a single plant, so you've quadrupled your output. Um, and the flavour is much better because you've got the oxygen at the roots and you've got a bigger crop. There's not really a downside to that. You're, you're mentioning control in a controlled environment, and I can appreciate that may be official from a farmer's perspective. But if we were to take this more to a domestic use or even a designer who was creating a, an apartment building and they just wanted to put yeah. this in um, for, to, to create a sense of community and a bit of food production... Yeah, I presume that their their specific needs would be very different to what a farmer's would be in, in the environment that, that they wouldn't have a a temperature controlled room, if you get what I mean. It would essentially be a bank of uh, your kit designed in a hallway effectively. Yeah, uh, exactly. It is, it, does the growing speeds and quality reduce if it's not in a, in a temperature controlled environment or can this thing still thrive even if it was in someone's garden? Yeah, and it was, if you put it on a sunny outside wall, it works beautifully. Um, obviously, you have to you have to take the, the the water part in during the winter because you don't want it, the pump to freeze. Um, but yeah, we've we've been working with several um, several sort of offices now that are. There's one large unit in Cambridge that we've put in they they it's a naturally aspirated building and the top layer the top floor is the reading room and it was actually for some reason getting a lot of co2 up there in the afternoon so with everybody breathing it was building up and it sat in the in the reading room so people were getting drowsy um so we put basil walls in there across the air inlets and that was taking out a lot of the co2 um it also gave a nice smell to the place it also gave you some to pick and pop in your sandwiches at lunchtime um, and that's worked really well when we've moved that on to a, a whole cabinet that we can put in so that effectively draws the office air in pours it across the plants the plants take out the co2 and you get a, a redu reduction in co2 of the, of the air coming out the other end of it so they so do provide a um... better working environment yeah, well, that's actually really interesting for us because that's something that we are really big on is integrating as much greenery and, and nature into buildings as possible so people have more interactions with nature and something that we always specify is clean air plants. So any sort of natural plants which clean and purify the air. Yeah. Um, and by the sounds of it, that, that is exactly what that system is doing at the same time as producing food. So it's sort of like a triple whammy of benefits. Yeah. Um, just to run through, so what are the sort of costs to set something like this up? Is it something that is is achievable or is this something that's quite expensive? Um, it's pretty achievable. We've got the domestic unit starts um, 
with five one meter tubes and all the pumps and timers and everything so you've got the full kit ready to go and that's 365 pounds now if you just plant that with herbs and if you spent a pound a day on herbs you've got your money back in a year and you know these obviously last a lot longer than a year um the we do a little starter unit for farmers who come across the unit and want to sort of learn about it and, and find out what the stuff tastes like etc so that's 10 one and a half meter tubes which is the commercial size and that's 665 pounds um and you can get quite a quite a good yield off of that and it goes up from there obviously as we're doing large uh, commercial areas then the price comes down but yeah basically you can you can start off with those with the full cabinet and the climate control stuff in as well they get nearer to um about four thousand pounds um which is fairly close to sort of a, an air conditioner effectively um so you know it's it depends on on the usage but yeah the the units that we do in, in offices we're getting a um a company that actually builds caravans to build the cabinets so they look pretty cool they, they've got nice sort of wood finishes and and um it's got a, a glass front to it so you can slide the glass open to pick and, and pop whatever you fancy in your sandwiches but it basically keeps the plants in a in a really controlled environment there as well um so you don't have to worry about you know not having it with enough sunlight or whatever the cabinet and it yeah. will provide all the all the um accoutrements it needs okay well and that would be with um lighting so if this was in a, a hallway for example that didn't have any natural daylight you could install lights to make it grow like it would be outside is that, is yeah. that what you mean yeah yeah exactly so we use leds for that LEDs. again okay. we've been really really careful with the power usage of those and we've worked out lots of ways to make that super efficient um but you can have them just in in open you know in in an open area like a, an atrium um that works really well you know you've got this amazing green wall as you walk in and you can get some incredible um, aromas off of that mm. um and it does it does change the atmosphere very much and what sort of um commercial opportunities are there or financial benefits for if we were looking less less at the sort of farmer scale and more at a, a residential or commercial developer mm -hmm. how many units do you actually is there any way you can someone at that scale could make money from this and at how many units would you say you would need so if i was going to design let's say a residential building of 200 units, how, how many of your pods do you think it would actually take to become a financially viable addition to the development? Well, that normally happens when uh, we, we really like collaborative working. We like the community working type um, scenarios. So we make, um, we've been approached several times to do community allotments, basically vertical allotments that sit in the middle of large building areas. Um, and each set of tubes has a, a number above it, which corresponds to the house number. Now, when you do that, people tend to club together. Um, and I, 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 I noticed this absolutely myself. I was out for a walk and I went to went th through the allotment and out into into the countryside. And there's a, there's a load of allotments near me. 
and I was chatting to people at a safe distance. Um, but I was telling them what I was doing and seeing what they were doing. And I, I went back and grabbed a handful of um, spinach and herbs and all sorts of things and went over there and swapped them for, for potatoes and, and um, some early crops. Um, and that just happens. People, once they get involved in growing their own food, they like to shop and swap and share it. Almost bartering. Yeah. Um, You've created an, your, your own currency within the community. Well, exactly. And I think that within that sort of sphere, there's an awful lot of people who come out of prison and the rehabilitation is, um, from what I can make out, £30 a backpack and a sleeping bag. Um, and those guys are being set up to reoffend um, by doing that. And we've working with various charities to take homeless people and get them into this as a cutting edge technology that they can transfer that knowledge. Um, but they can create business opportunity out of that just by literally going around and tending or, or harvesting these crops if people haven't got the time to do it. Um, then you've suddenly got a business that's that's got an awful lot of people growing so you've got a rock solid supply chain, as it were. You've you've got a pretty rock solid offtake because food isn't going to go out of fashion anytime shortly. Um, and those are the those are the the beans that create businesses. Um, and very shortly, you get restaurants coming in and saying, "Look, you know, can we rent ten meters of this stuff to grow our microgreens or whatever it happens to be?" Um, and that becomes a business really quickly. Um, and it's a business that people can take advantage of. You know, if they are in a community area, then everybody gets a share. If somebody likes the idea of it and wants to take some more and go and set their garage up, then they, they can start their own business like that. Mm, um, sure that's what I've really liked about this all the way through is, you know, because it's very, very low power, it will effectively run from a car battery and a solar panel so we can put it off grid anywhere in the world and you know we're talking mostly about the UK at the moment but we've taken it to lots of other countries that you get a lot of um, farming areas particularly now are, are running out of water they're running out of soil and all sorts of other things and we can turn that whole situation around by just giving them the raw bones you know it's giving a man a fishing rod and teaching him to fish mm. um, then we, we can create that situation where people aren't then um, becoming economic migrants and they very often go to large cities. And we've seen this in lots of countries where they have, you know, they're, they're farmers, they're traditional farmers and have been for generations. And they come to cities, they've got no transferable skills. Um, so they fall through the gaps and they become a problem. Um, Jason, you, you mentioned um, about other countries adopting adopting this and um mainly i think you're just saying there about water shortages um is that something that you, you see a lot more of in the uh, overseas uh, adopting this technology more than the uk just to underline that point as well like countries asia singapore in particular it's it's a huge huge industry so i am definitely as, as just as jordan is really curious as to see why um, other countries have adopted this at such a, a scale where it hasn't 
yet in the UK. Yeah, well, you know, this is to do with risk profile, I think. Um, the Asian and um, Indian and African farmers have hit a point where they can't grow anymore. Um, so their risk profile is out the roof and they will adopt anything that means that they can grow food for themselves. Now, when you offer them the opportunity of growing more food and of a much better quality, you get a lot of this thing called hidden hun hunger, in, in particularly in parts of Africa, where they're growing crops, but they're not crop rotating, they're not particularly fertilizing. So the crops aren't very high in nutritional value. So they're eating stuff, but they may as well not be. Um, and when you offer them the opportunity to create export quality veg, all of a sudden their horizon changes. They've now got a business that, you know, supermarkets are looking for consistent, uh, dependable, clean supplies of food from anywhere. You know, and, and as we know, there's a lot of food mileage going on. Now, that we can that we can solve that we can go in there and say look we can do this it just needs a bit of cash now those countries are very often um you've got cash available to them the opportunities are slightly more rare because a lot of the stuff that we have here that we take for granted they can't maintain in other countries um so this is very very low maintenance it sits it's very low energy it sits perfectly in their in their scope um, what you've got to also bear in mind is there are large parts of the UK now which are officially desert um, and are becoming more and more difficult to grow in. And when you've got changing weather patterns, then you've got to change your crops. Now, this is creating a, a learning um, a learning curve. You've got to relearn how to grow the right crops in the UK. I know there's an awful lot of crop got. Uh, ploughed in last year because either it bolted because it was too hot or there wasn't enough water or you know we're seeing that right now um, so there's a lot of you know that happens in other countries type thinking actually it's happening in the UK right now you have a look at the potatoes that came out of the soil last year um, you look at the onion crop uh, these are staple crops and we're having trouble growing them in the UK um, so We've cut our teeth on those sort of scenarios in other countries, but now we're looking around in the UK and again, the risk profile in the UK of farming is raised again. And farming, do you the think farming lottery is untenable now? Yeah. Do you think, Jason, that, that I mean, uh, I don't focus too much on, on COVID-19 and, and how that's changing our short term horizons, but do you think naturally that that, that will change patterns around how people live and shop and actually this is a way in which food production can be brought closer to, to, to source um, and, and having a more sustainable approach towards um, farming. Do you think that's, that's something that we're, we're, we're due to see and expect? Uh, yes. It's difficult because we're, again, we're in, even in England, we're offering something that hasn't been there before. <clears throat> so... There's an awful lot of struggling going on to make um, older methods work, and there's some, you know, interesting practices going on. I think that there's a lot of farmers who are 
looking at the farming market at the moment and a farm under a thousand acres with more than two sons one of those sons is going to be unemployed he's going to have to go and retrain and do something else they can't support two sons on a thousand acre farm or two families um so this can actually bring them back onto that farm and get them up and running with a viable business um equally if everybody in the uk right now is starting to realize that you know that food chain could be viewed as fragile because you know we've always looked at the food miles and everybody's um has has the feeling at least that the food chain is far too long now now we can create farming opportunities in the uk which fill those gaps we can grow curry leaves we can grow stuff that isn't usually grown in the uk um right in the center of towns um and again that can be taken up either by entrepreneurs by second sons of farmers or by community groups um and anyway you bring this growing technology together with people um you start getting this same scenario where people club together and even even we noticed in the UK farmers as soon as we introduce them to it they come with six other farmers um, and they work together as a sort of a as a group so we sort of spotted that trend early on and started to plan and form a farming cooperative um, and that was for lots of different reasons it was to farmers have always been great at growing crops have been rubbish at selling them they don't like selling them um, and so if we could have the farming cooperative where we could share resources which would be harvesters which would be people doing things around the farm um, <clears throat> then they don't have to have many people in there as labor our people would come in pick harvest replant whatever um, and take it away pack it and sell it so we could create by taking out a few layers in that in that whole marketplace we can create a much bigger uh, profit margin for the gap for the farmers and the supermarkets and i think that <clears throat> farming has had more and more demands on the profit margin um to the point where it's driving them out of business and you know it stands to reason there's been no money going into r&d for a long, long time uh, it started to pick up a lot now but there's been no money going in so we've stayed doing the same thing because we've been strapped down by the by the profit margin <clears throat> jason how can this so if we're, if we're trying to focus this on to how we can design this into future buildings yeah. be the ideal building of the future so if we're putting a new building in the center of london we really want to create community resilience by them having a, an additional food resource so they're not constantly relying on sainsbury shops down the road and this that's particularly important what we're seeing now with food shortages but we also want to improve um, our sustainability and we're also creating community connectiveness yeah. So if we want to achieve all of those <clears throat> aspects through using uh, your solution for effectively urban farming within buildings, what's the ideal building? How, how does that look? Well, nowadays everything is the ideal building. Um, but there is a lot of uh, building going on and they have to hit 
and accrue a certain amount of green points, as it were. So we've been talking to people who are building buildings in in towns and to get their, their green score up, we can put a floor of, of uh, a farm in. So in, in a multi-storey building, you'd have one or two floors which are just farm and that can provide an awful lot of fruit and veg into that building or and into the surrounding buildings and businesses. Um, so that creates a... It creates green brownie points when you're putting buildings up, but then from that is going to create a business in there which is sustainable, which can be community-led. Um, and I think that's that's the crossover point where it goes from farming technology into communal technology into architectural technology. Um, and I was talking to an architect last night actually, who was saying that you know that that is exactly what they're looking for not just as a, you know, for the green points and the sustainability, but actually as a selling point. Mm. Um, and all of those buildings are perfectly well serviced. We like to use rainwater so we can, you know, they've, they've got a roof. We can take the rainwater off of that. And we don't use very much. Um, so the plants get the perfect scenario, really, because they're being kept uh, in a controlled environment, so they're, they're away from the elements, as it were. They're, they're not getting dirty, they're not getting contaminated, um, and they're being sold directly into the local community. I'm back. I'm back. Sorry, guys. I've, uh, I've had a, a, a bit of absence with um, the product of, of home working and, and um, a copper internet line, I think, is probably what, what's to blame. So I'm, I'm here. <laughs> so thank you, Jason, picking up. That last point, I think Adam, I just came in at the point which Adam asked the question about how this can be um, integrated better into into buildings. I think it's um, something that, that obviously we're very keen on and, and understand um, how how buildings can be adapted to, to pick this kind of thing up, not just because of a, a need as a result of um, change in, in buyer behaviour in, in food. And, and perhaps that's something we might see for, for certainly the rest of this year, but actually the the more wider social benefits of of having a, a building which um, can can meet those needs, and through a technology which can be, I think, actually quite easily retrofitted into an existing building. I don't think it needs to have necessarily dedicated areas for it. Um, yeah. And and ultimately, the the biggest thing Adam and I find when we're in in property is operational cost expenditure. How that how that is. Um, how that is thought of in, in the early stages of, of design and, and cost planning. Um, yeah. But, but this, this is, a, is a very cost-effective product, isn't it? You're just making use of what is, is already there. Something I wasn't sure if we've spoken about is just the use of photovoltaic cells to, to actually give the power for these things, for the motors to drive the, the, the throughput of water. Is that something that can just quite easily be into, integrated onto an existing building as part of that? Yeah, absolutely. The motor itself is a 60 watt motor um, and that will run and control uh, up to 100 tubes. Um, so, yeah, the, the power draw from the actual the process is minimal and you're going to use more on lights. But again, we've got various ways around that. Um, that saves an awful lot of energy. Um, yeah, and that's normally that, you know, the second question after, okay, so you do vertical farming. What are the lighting? What are the lighting costs? Um, and that's that's certainly something that we've been working on the whole time to make it more and more and more efficient. 
Um, a lot of it is really, really simple common sense and a bit of, you know, a bit of electronic know-how. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of a lot of tricks up our sleeve to keep that that lighting cost very, very low. Um, and so they can be adapted for almost anywhere. And even if they're just sporadically placed through a building, people get such an inordinate amount of joy just out of things growing around them, you know, plants growing around them. And it does change the atmosphere of a place. Um, and we've put them in old people's homes and, you know, hospitals and various places. And in the old people's homes, because <clears throat> there's no heavy work to do, there's no digging, no weeding, um, then these people are getting up early to go and tend plants and they love it and they, they don't sit down and watch television all day. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's given them a, a bit of a lease of life. And I think everybody that gets involved in growing gets something from it, you know, not not just the tangibles, but the intangibles of these systems are amazing. When you see them, um, when you go back to visit one at an old people's home and there's a, a, like five or six people around it gardening madly, um, and if somebody's in a wheelchair, we can put them lower down a wall and they don't have to ask anybody to help them. You know, very often the solution for that is raised flower beds, but you still need somebody to help you dig it over and things like that. But with this, they can do it all themselves. Um, and the, the return from that in, in satisfaction, I suppose, for them is amazing. Something um, um, I like the, the sound of, and something you mentioned earlier, is about the about rehabilitation of um, of, of offenders. And uh, Adam and I have, in the, in the past, um, looked at the army veterans who are homeless, um, yeah. which is, is something that's probably also in a, in a bracket that, that that doesn't get enough attention. Um, yeah, and how how they can be supported in the right way, and properties a way in which we we looked at that. But something I think is. That sort of just jogged a, a thought in my mind is is actually whilst food is is something we always need, but there's there's other things that come as a result of this, and actually by introducing this type of technology into existing buildings or new buildings, actually can create another revenue stream, another income stream for that potential um, homeowner or for that potential um, corporate occupier or commercial occupier that that can then actually have instead of a a, a restaurant or a bar or something is actually we can we can we can do this within our building um and yep. that's that's quite exciting i think for the future is that the ability to efficiently create um quite nice products as well it's not you know it's yeah. not just any old products i think that's, that's quite an exciting and i just thought. underscore that that point quickly so i completely agree and that that from my perspective, is a, is a really exciting technological advance that you can effectively look at a building's existing unusable spaces, so hallways, atriums, rooftops, as a potential money-making venture, and that could potentially reduce the operational costs of that building. But that's not, from my own perspective, that's not the only benefit because you're obviously improve, improving sustainability significantly by growing your own food, capturing rainwater, foods not having to be grown in another country, then shipped and packaged and delivered by car to the shops and you drive to get it. So that's that's a whole nother bubble in itself. But the thing that I really, really like about this is what you just touched on um, 
then, Jason, but also at the very beginning of your speech as to why you initially got into this was because you weren't enjoying your lifestyle and you were having trouble sleeping. And this was something that you were quite passionate about. And it was it was a real lifestyle change. So um, through our research, we've really identified that the strongest uh, through one of our control group studies is we identified that the strongest association with better quality of life in the home environment is actually social connectiveness with your neighbors and with your community. And this, for, for me, is such a cheap, easy, with multiple benefits solution to creating a, an environment within a home or within a city or within a community to get people together to interact socially. As you said, you, you've been in and seen five people all, all working on it together. And just build that sense of trust, that sense of relationships and community values just from growing food in a really easy, cheap way. So I, I think the future of design is is 100% heading in this way because there are so many positives. And the only potential negative I could see was that it's really, really expensive and financially unviable for people. But that is definitely not the case here. Yeah. And just sort of picking up on some of the points and I'll come back into that is we're actually I, I met a load of um, well I think people call them hippies they're pretty free spirits but they live on a on a, on a riverbed in in southern Spain and I was, I was just meandering around a place called Orgiva which is the most beautiful place and I started talking to them and, and they were growing a range of crops I think it's safe to say um, and the guy that was actually holding this community together was uh, ex-army. And he drifted for a while. He came out and he was homeless and he drifted for a while and he's ended up down there. Um, and he literally holds his community together. Now, I, I've come across an awful lot of um, ex-army people who are in the same position. So between us and up until, up until the, everything stopped... We're trying to sort out way stations effectively with a farm on run by an army guy. Because when you put those guys back together, they really work well together. You know, that's that's what they've been trained to do. And sacking them off in, in, into the community with, with no real support isn't a brilliant, you know, isn't good for them. Mm. Um, and so we've been trying to work with army um charities and these guys in Spain to create a, a a chain of these units set up various places where people can go sleep work and move on to the next one if they want to so they're designed for people who, who kind of want to be a bit transient um and but still want to have that you know their their community of of people people who understand where they've been and what they've done. Um, that's actually, that's created a lot of interest. And and I really, really enjoy that sort of work. And, and th I love working with those guys because their work ethic is impeccable. Um, and their organisation is amazing. And, you know, they're, they're, they're wasting on the streets. Mm. They could be doing something incredible. And, you know, when you start those guys off, They've very often got some issues, um, 
but yeah, when they start doing something tangible for communities, growing food for hospitals and, and schools and things, it puts them, puts them back on the social map um, and makes them feel good about what they're doing. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's a really, really important part of what we're doing. Um, yeah, it's, um, is creating that situation. Yeah, you're, you're effectively building community resilience just through such a simple design adaption yeah. that most people, the majority of people can afford to, to do. So it's, it's a no-brainer from our perspective. Yeah. Um, just leading into where uh, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> mindful, I'm mindful of your time um, and, and your, uh, your afternoon schedule of pruning. I'm sure you've got a lot of pruning to do. <laughs> so um, we'll just lead on to the final question now is to do you have any final thoughts or recommendations or advice for the, the property professionals industry when they're sort of um, looking at how to integrate this into a building? Yeah, from what we've seen, I think it pays, um, there's, a, there's a generation coming through who are very, very aware of sustainability and where their food comes from and what's in it. And if you can give them food that has no herbicide, has no pesticide, and you're feeding it on a, 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 a batch of trace elements and all sorts of other things that are normally people are popping supplements to get because it's not in their food. Um, so you're getting good, healthy food being created. Now that has been something that's, you know, arguably started in the in the in the seventies with the the good life type scenario. Um, and people have always wanted that, but they can't quite get it. They can't. They don't want to dig up their gardens. They don't want to walk down to the allotment. You know, we've become a different society. We want a bit more instant gratification. So if you can grow things faster, if you can. Um, grow them the sort of food that you're, you'd be happy feeding your children. Um, then, and it's you know, and it's achievable, and it's it's not a lot of muddy, mucky work, but you can do it at home or in the office. That becomes a real plus for the for the whole system. So that's you know, the domestic market people enjoy growing it, and they want to consume that product. Um, so yeah, I think that as a selling tool to have this either as a community allotment already in a, in a, um, in a building area, in a building zone, that's actually quite a, quite a good selling point. Um, from the architects and the property developers point of view, you're getting good green credentials from it. Um, you can also use very often when when uh, property developers buy land, they will get, particularly in rural zones, actually, but they will get a, a package of um, building land. They might get some green field with it. They might get some um, contaminated land with it, and this can go on contaminated land. It, it's because it's not touching the soil. It's creating food above that so you can actually make use of that contaminated land rather than scratching your head and wondering exactly what to do with it and you know there are a lot of a lot of issues around that um so to to mop up a lot of the and mitigate a lot of the objections to new building areas and to actually make the very best of those building areas and bring people in who understand 
understand the community and sustainability angle and are attracted by that. They're actually pretty good people to have um, in in big housing areas. Um, and they make it work and they make it a success and once you know if you can prove to, to councillors that you are doing this and you are creating areas that are largely sustaining themselves or, or at least creating a lot of food there that's um, sustainably grown um, you get a much higher chance of grabbing their interest and, and getting acceptance for, for new builds um, so I think right the way through from from making it a better environment inside the places making better working environments making better living environments and creating a, a workable business model that ticks a lot of boxes I think that's where this sits in, in regard to creating um, and helping developers and architects and um, planners work together and agree agree on on you know the the, the ongoing projects <clears throat> couldn't agree more so um jason just to wrap up where can people find you where can they find more information about the growing kits both domestic and commercial uh where can they follow you and, and find anything they want to find out about you where do they head um well, there's our website, which is aponic, A-P-O-N-I-C dot co dot UK. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter and Facebook. Um, but yeah, basically just put aponic into your browser and we'll, we'll come up there. Voila. Jason, been an absolute pleasure. Too long between innings, but uh, it was fantastic to, to catch up again today and hopefully... Uh, we can come back out to your, your uh, urban farming factory in the not too distant future and see, see what's happened in the last year. Yeah, it's been great Thank to talk you, to Jason. Thanks for listening to the Built for Life podcast. If you learned something new today or found value from hearing from a different property perspective, please comment on what you found useful as it helps us understand what you like and what you want to hear more of. And also please subscribe if you want more. And most importantly, please share this video to the people in your network you believe will get the most value from the information as you are personally helping spread information and education across the industry. As they say, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change your world. And by you watching and sharing this, you are now part of that group. And just to finish, if you would like unlimited free access to the world's best research and resources related to health, well-being and the built environment, you can subscribe to the Life Proven Library where academic research, reports and case studies are regularly added. They're then reviewed in detail and the key findings are extracted into easy to use dot points and also a brief summary video. So you don't even need to read the reports, all the heavy lifting has been done for you as you can just watch the summary. So just head to www.lifeproven.co.uk and click on the button library at the top of the page. And as always, if you have a project, an investment opportunity, or you are interested in a collaboration and would like to discuss directly, you can contact us at adam at lifeproven.co.uk.